0: Hi, welcome to The Backbench. This is the Politics and Current Affairs episode of BenchPod. And today I'm joined by my good friend Fergal. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, Today we're just going to get straight into the news. Uh, One of the biggest stories of the week is that the UK government has announced a massive reopening of lots of businesses on the 4th of July, including restaurants, pubs and hairdressers. Uh, Some are saying it's way too soon. Some are saying it's about time. What do you think of it, Fergal? I
1: mean to the rest of the public it sends out a message that we're going to come out of lockdown in, in quite a quick way and I'm, I'm guessing people appreciate that they obviously like people enjoy going on the pub people enjoy what like, they're going to get their hair cut a lot of like sort of recreation recreational activities uh people get to enjoy now but I do think it is too early like especially as like pubs especially have been prioritized over like schools I think yeah. that's ridiculous. Like. Shows the government's priorities. Shows what kind of
0: country we are. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. I think it's one of the whole challenges. The time for the government is about getting the right balance, like providing people with the social liberty that they want, as well as um, maintaining the economy, but also keeping everyone safe and protecting their health. Um, personally, I do agree that is all happening early, especially when number of cases still aren't really dropping below a thousand, incre- like they're still increasing by around a thousand per day. I think it is. Um, at least yeah. they haven't dropped below a thousand yet. It's something. It's a risk. Um, the government's saying it's, which the government have admitted, they're saying it's a calculated risk. They think it's safe to do because you're less likely to encounter a person of coronavirus at this point. Um, you are. It's it's gone down to about one in every seventeen hundred uh, people has got COVID nineteen. Uh, that's what Boris said in the the final uh, coronavirus briefing. What do you think about them abandoning the daily coronavirus briefings? Because I thought they were, I thought they were really necessary at this type of direct direct way of communicating with the public. Obviously, they were drawn up and stuff by the government, so you were only mm-hmm. they were only communicating certain information, and they weren't saying <laughs> all the things that everyone needed to hear, which was often asked by some journalists. But um, yeah, what do you think about them getting rid of those?
1: I think uh, I'm a bit torn on it. I think. At the start, I think it was very important. Like I think people really know how serious it was. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, the reasons why you could say they should be kept so people realise how important it is. But at the same time I feel like people people just kind of ignore it, especially if it's for a minister that's like say the environment secretary or someone that doesn't have yeah. Like, if it's not from Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson, you don't really take it Yeah, wrong. yeah. You don't take it seriously anyway, I, but like... Yeah,
0: I mean, I I watched quite a few of them. I watched most of them, actually, but I look for the general public as a whole, they weren't mm. going to be that interested when it wasn't one of the bigger ministers or the prime minister himself taking the press mm. conference.
1: I think you're right, yeah. I think with the like, it's important that the scientists go on there, Uh, like, they should be able to really, like, show how important and how cautious they are about like re- like reopening everything but yeah people aren't really interested the problem is people really aren't really interested in it and people kind of just want i don't
0: know yeah more
1: entertaining tv i
0: think yeah um the government also announced that restaurants and pubs and those kind of places will only be able to open with uh they announced the relaxing of the two metre social distancing rule to what they're calling one metre plus, which isn't one metre plus in terms of distance, it's one metre plus mitigations to prevent the spread of coronavirus, such as uh like glass or glass screens, those kind of things between tables or something or and uh only table service, staff wearing masks, those kind of things. Um it's a bit weird now that they're that they're doing it now. Yeah, yeah. Um a lot of people are asking if if it can, if it's safe to do it to one meter. Why didn't we have that at the start? When realistically, mm. it isn't. It really isn't that safe at one meter. Um, yeah. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't know until until just before the podcast when you told me about the actually the details of the one yeah, meter. Yeah, it's nine. not
0: clear at all. Mm. That's been a theme. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Definitely. I think that's the problem. I don't think people. I don't think people are very clear on what that means, and I think. When it's in, when you say two meters to one meter plus, people don't care about details. People are just going to get. I think social distancing. To be fair, when they when they said like you can meet, um, is it is it six people? Yeah, it's, in a group, it's still
0: groups of six at the moment. Yeah. Yeah,
1: like I just feel that as soon as that happened, people started to not be really, like t- not take social yeah, distancing,
0: taking seriously. liberties a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel sorry for the people that are on like having to keep their shops open to like keep the running, like the corner shops particularly, like. You know, not not all the corner shops have glass screens. Some of them do, some of them don't. Like,
0: yeah. it, the government
1: kind of sort of makes it very homogenous, but I don't think everyone has like can can get like some sort of yeah. thing to make it one meter plus.
0: If you're looking at it from a cynical point of view, you could say it's part of the government's strategy to put a responsibility on the public. Like, they have been criticised throughout the uh, throughout the coronavirus crisis for deliberately vague messaging so yeah. the responsibility is put on the public and if there is any backlash towards the government the government can say oh no we told you to do it you just interpreted it the wrong way mm. um i think that is a possibility here i wouldn't put it past the government for yeah. doing that but, um yeah they
1: probably said they're following the science or something yeah like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um moving on to the next one uh robert Jenrick, who is the secretary of state for housing and communities uh he overturned government planning decisions to protect the interests of a Tory donor. Um, I'm sure you have a lot to say about that one, Fergal.
1: I mean, yeah, it just really shows, I mean, there's a book by Owen Jones, I think it was, uh, I think it was written in like 2013, 14 time uh, called the establishment and how different parts of the sort of political establishment sort of um, work together for their like vested interest. And this is like a real case of that. So it really shows how, like, the UK has become a sort of US system with this sort of, this uh, Tory donor, Richard Desmond, like, donating money to the Conservative Party. Like, I think it was, I think it was two months, or no, sorry, two weeks after um, after this application had been overturned. And he was seen with Robert Jennerick at, a, at yeah. a, a Tory meal, fundraising meal.
0: So it really does show you, like, sort of cozying mm-hmm. of... <laughs> um, interesting that Boris has chosen not to sack him mm. um, are you surprised by that at all or not really after the Dominic Cummings scandal because I from the from yeah, public's yeah. point of view Robert it's a bit it's crazy to say that an elected an actually elected MP who's a minister is is less valuable to the <laughs> <laughs> the Prime Minister than an unelected advisor but you, some most people would probably agree that Generic is more expendable than Cummings but to, uh, to Boris at least but Boris Johnson has chosen not to sack him
1: yeah I mean I think yeah I, I do I think Robert Jenner is probably more expendable than
0: um, than Dominic Khamug, which but, is a sad state of affairs if one of your senior ministers is yeah. <laughs> more expendable than an unelected advisor,
1: advisor yeah I, I agree with that Um, and like I think yeah I think it <laughs> I think the the problem is is the Tories have got an eighty seat majority they don't really have to they don't really have to worry so much yeah i've got like, have
0: got a shield around yeah. them because of that
1: and like we're in the middle of a pandemic like the problem is is a lot of people will forget about this next week and like people forgot about Dominic Cummings yeah a lot of, well, arguably a lot of people forgot about that after like two weeks so this is probably i mean there's a lot of details as i say like he like he saved Desmond like forty million pounds um, yeah um from paying to, to the local authority to, like, fund schools and healthcare uh, services. So it really does show you, but, like, I just think you can sort of just get away with it, really. The time you're living in. Uh,
0: obviously, there was another news story involving a certain Labour shadow cabinet member, but we'll talk about that in more detail in the next segment. Uh, but our final news headline uh, for now is that the UK government has announced travel corridors will be available with certain European countries, holiday destinations such as france greece and spain um a travel corridor or travel bridges or whatever they're being referred to as by the government uh, means that uh uk citizens are treated free to travel to and from those countries on holiday without having to self-isolate or quarantine for 14 days um it's a it's a risky move allowing essentially free unessential unessential travel to european countries without uh quarantining coming home it's it's a real risk i'm not sure that many people agree with it although i'm sure many people are desperate to leave the country and go on a Mm. much-needed holiday for a lot of people (laughs) um yeah
1: i think i think um Obviously, that's another example. I think of Boris Johnson. Like he, he wants to give good news as quickly as possible to people. Yeah. Like he doesn't want to focus on, he doesn't want people to focus on how badly the government's handled the sort of whole health aspect and the number of people that have died. So he wants to focus on yeah, reducing the me the two meter to one meter plus. And I think holiday, particularly like, I I mean I know other countries have opened their borders, but they did handle the health aspect of the virus a lot better than yeah we did, yeah, I think so. I think... And, and also, there's there's sort of this thing of... Obviously, there's Portugal and Sweden, I think, that um, the, the uh, UK citizens can't travel to. Yeah,
0: um, Portugal is because of an outbreak in Lisbon. Yeah. They're still getting less daily cases a day as a whole than the UK. But mm-hmm. um, there's been a, an, an outbreak in Lisbon. And Sweden is because uh, they haven't had a, any real lockdown there. There's, the yeah. cases haven't been massively high they haven't been out of control but there's a higher infection rate and lower testing which is why the infection rate is looks quite high and and yeah but, um, yeah those countries are off limits as for now um but I you meant, think it's inaccurate you yeah, sorry, sorry sorry uh, you, sorry you mentioned um boris johnson bringing good news to people and they have been yeah. treating him like the the bearer of good news recently um he was unavailable for like a lot of the press conferences he was only doing about one a week and that was usually when he was announcing um that lockdown restrictions were being eased so yeah. portraying boris johnson as the as the person who's always going to bring good news is what the conservative party want at the moment because yeah. he was his net favorability rating was rapidly declining um a couple of recent polls from salvation and redfield wilton which i'm getting from uh at britain elects on twitter they've both had the conservatives increasing by a point to uh, redfield redfield Wilton have them at 44 percent and the conservative and uh sorry salvation have them at 43 percent um uh, with labor six uh six and seven points behind respectively i think that's fairly that isn't seems to be an accurate representation of what's going on now especially with the conservatives increasing as boris is announcing that all these all these great things are happening to the country as he as he yeah, wants it to be seen yeah. um it's not so much of a mountain to climb for Labour anymore. They've, they've still, obviously we'll talk about it in a bit, but Starmer's changing the whole image of the Labour Party. And I feel like it will be a bit of time before we see them on par with the Tories in, in the polls. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think I think you're right. I think it's
1: too early to say because um, it, it depends on the way
0: people perceive
1: how they feel um, the incoming economic crisis. I think that is the key. the key thing that's going to depend on on, yeah, on the polls yeah. uh, of, of the two main parties for sure. Because if they can offer a really radical alternative and show that they would have not only handled the crisis better, but would, would do better in terms of um, getting us out of one of the was going to be one of the worst economic crises we've ever had in this country. Um, yeah, I think that's it, it's a really important factor. But I think it's too early to say. Like, it's too early to predict what what's going to happen in terms of that.
0: I think. Yeah. Uh, for the next segment, we're going to talk about Rebecca Long-Bailey's dismissal from Labour's shadow cabinet. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey was the shadow education secretary and she was dismissed from her position as a result of her retweeting an interview uh, from the Independent with Maxine Peake, which contained, which contained an anti uh, well, what has been called an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, claiming that US police learned their, some of their detention tactics when arresting citizens from the Israeli secret service. Um, me and Fergal are both Labour members, so we both have a lot to say about this issue. Um, I'll let you go first on that one, Fergal.
1: Yeah, so obviously the main point, he said it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, so we'll have, like, the details of it is obviously linking, uh, as you say, George, the death of George Floyd, the techniques used to kill George Floyd by the US police to uh, Israeli secret service tactics. Now, if you just take that, like not even look at the thing, like that does not constitute what anti-Semitism is. Like anti-Semitism is about uh, uh, hatred and like racism towards Jewish people. Yeah. Like if you put the Israeli, in, in, sorry, the in, the Iranian uh, secret, if you said the Iranian secret service, for example, hypothetically, no one would say that's Islamophobic. Um, Islamophobic and anti-Semitism are the same. They're, they're both racism. They're both a type of racism of a religion. So first of all, it's not, it's clearly not anti-Semitism. Well, I disagree with
0: that. Yeah. I don't know what by that. Um, obviously, there has been a history of and of anti-Semitism rooted in anti-Israel or anti-Zionist views. That is yeah. that is that you you can't deny that. But in this no. case, this isn't an overtly anti-Semitic view. Yeah. The issue of anti-Semitism and its links, even though anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are completely different issues they are they have been linked and Mm it's got a complex history but in this case um there's an the the quote itself is not anti-semitic um also it's not rebecca long bailey endorsing it i'm pretty sure most well even though it is a bit of a a naive move from a frontline politician to retweet this kind of thing retweets don't necessarily have to mean endorsements and it wasn't Mm like rlb said the quote herself it was in a, in an article that she retweeted. She didn't talk about it. She just retweeted the article.
1: Yeah. So I think, yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think she did, she had a Twitter uh, feed like saying, oh, I don't endorse. Yeah. I don't endorse the thing. And then she was still, she just said, so she don't endorse all of the article, but obviously Keir wanted her to like remove it. And like, she refused on like moral, on moral grounds. Um, I mean, you could say, I mean, supporters of Kier will say that it's a, uh, it's potentially a conspiracy theory. They could argue that because you could say that it was, it was slightly lazy, like journalist, well, a lazy thing to say from Maxine Peake in terms of, which she has, she has apologized for, uh, for what she said in the interview about linking, you know, linking directly saying that the US police tactics were from Israeli, Uh, secret service seminars that is like it's lazy journalism it's not but it's not anti
0: it's not not anti-semitic yeah as i said it is a bit of a especially when labour's got such a problem with anti-semitism and they need something that they need to work on before the next election um Mm. as i said it was naive from rebecca long bailey who was a leadership candidate member of the shadow cabinet it wasn't she it wasn't it was a mistake to retweet the article so I personally I think she should know better than that yeah, but not in that. terms of on a on a personal level but in terms of her being a frontline politician but that being said there are so many issues with her being sacked here um, first one is one of the main ones which is why a lot of people are angry at this is that for a lot of people it looks it appears as a thinly veiled attack on the left wing of the party um, that that the, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader he's built up an image uh, of the party, a socialist, a party of the left, which is what Labour traditionally has been mm. um, and Rebecca Long Bailey was one of the, you know, she is a follower of Corbynism, she was viewed as the, called the Corbyn continuity candidate during the Labour leadership election and for Keir Starmer to use, to use to, for her to be the person who takes the fall in this situation it looks as Keir Starmer is using an, the and campaign against anti-Semitism as an excuse to remove one of the most prominent socialist members of the party.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, as you say, like, it looks like it is a bit of an overreaction, considering we it,
0: It's definitely an overreaction. Yeah,
1: like, the next election is is not until, tw- like, 2024. Like, if you're trying to appease the electorate and um, not... Because there's a thing that many people many labor members have argued which is that the left of the party li- like to talk about the issue of Israel and they would rather focus on um, issues affecting like everyday working class people's lives yeah. you know austerity cuts to public services, uh, lower wages, uh, insecure uh, job contracts jo- the list could go on um, but you can't you can't then say that by then conflating anti-Semitism. And anti-Zionism, yeah, uh, in a way, and and also, um, uh, you need to take action on the, the members who have actually the minority of members who have actually said uh, blatantly and overtly anti-Semitic things. I think, like anti-Semitic statements. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, we have to. We do have to see it from both sides. Um, from Keir Starmer's point of view, he's he probably seeing it as killing two birds with one stone here. Um, it's an, he's, using, he's making an example out of rebecca long bailey using her as to as, as a as a show to show that he's um tough on anti-semitism which is something that he made a priority when he became labor leader mm. also using her as an example to show that labor is absolutely moving away from the image that corbyn built when he yeah. was when he was a labor leader which is in in terms of Labour winning back favourability with the voters that Corbyn lost, it's a it's a it's a you could say it's a good thing. Um, obviously, some of some of Corbyn's staunchly leftist policies were going to have to be abandoned when Starmer came in. If Labour are to win an election, that's everyone knew that. But getting rid of one of the most prominent left wing members of the party s- says a lot about Starmer like he's that he's prepared to attack the left of the party and the, what again what a lot of people had an issue with with was that the campaign group of left-wing Labour MPs uh, requested a meeting with Starmer to discuss Re, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey's dismissal and he declined that request
1: yeah I, I agree I think like the left of the party is definitely going to see this as a uh, as a tribal move as a sort of factional move because Rebecca Long Bailey was the most senior yeah as you say sort of Corbin Corbin Easter if um and I think I think people uh yeah on the left and we've seen like the cam, like the campaign group as you say trying to uh, have a meeting here and they've obviously been refused that and I think I think it's not good at this stage particularly in the middle of a pandemic if if like fascism breaks out again in labor because even the the, the report um I, can't, I think it's the Commission of, I might be wrong, the Commission of Human Rights report, I think, which should be coming up uh, later this year, I think, on anti-Semitism in the party, says that one of the key reasons is factionalism yeah. on both sides. So both sides um, being divided and not having unified response to anti-Semitism is mm. definitely a
0: problem. Yeah. And neither of us are pretending like Labour hasn't had an issue with anti-Semitism. We, like, everyone knows that's been an issue, not to the extent where people were as corbyn was being portrayed in the mainstream media as an <laughs> explicit as explicitly anti-semitic which realistically he isn't but mm. there has been a problem of within labor with anti-semitism but in this case alone i don't think this is mild compared to a lot of things i've been said and which is why it can be called, which is why it can be cast as an overreaction um mm. you talked about factionalism again which is something that Keir starman wanted to end, he wanted to bring about party unity when he became leader, he wanted to make a Labour a broad church again. Um yeah. but this is just creating party unity, it's reinforcing divisions between the left and the centre of the party. Um it's not a good move in, in that sense. While it may be might might while it might work in winning back public favourability, it's not working in the sense where to to bring back party unity.
1: No, No, exactly. And I think, as I say, I can see, I'm not completely, you know, defending Rebecca O'Neill, I can see the issue with the timing and the sort of uh, the timing of posting this all, So we're seeing um, BLM protests um, very regularly across across the world, um, particularly in the UK and the US. And I think some people might see it potentially, I don't know what your thoughts are, but potentially might see it as a bit of a conflation of two slightly separate issues tactic of sort of US policing and the sort of brutality used by them and uh, and the sort of an article about labour by Maxine Peake it does seem a bit there's a potentially a a point to be made there but um, yeah I definitely think yeah I definitely think it's the wrong decision and there is evidence um, from an uh, I think it's 2018 Amnesty International report uh, saying that the US um, police tactics uh, are in some way like the tactics used in in the west bank yeah
0: it was it was reported by amnesty that there is actually some evidence this isn't this isn't an absent uh a, <laughs> this isn't a baseless claim or anything there's some substance mm-hmm. to it um not like not concrete evidence or like it's in writing or anything but there is some substance to this claim and like i said i do think it, rebecca Longbaney should know better than to retweet the article when she knows what it can be viewed as as she is one yeah. of a, a prominent labor politician and it as you see it's cost to her role as has cost her role in the shadow cabinet but I still think it's an overreaction especially when there's um as we saw a couple of months ago of the leaks labor report cases of actual racism against uh black MPs such as uh, Diane Abbott from within mm. the party and labor MPs uh, selling stories to the press about Diane Abbott crying in the toilets, as a result of vile racist abuse that yeah. was being thrown at her, those kind of things, and like Starmer's just let them go. But when it's he's shown it's that easy to remove uh, a member of his shadow cabinet from their position without an investigation, quickly yeah. and brutally. Why can't he do the same for other cases of racism in the party? Yet, yet, sure, Labour don't have a. Um, I don't really have a problem, or a public public problem with racism towards BAME uh, the BAME community as the Conservative Party do but mm. they do have a problem with this it needs to be understood yeah. and if he can remove Rebecca Long-Bailey from her position just like that why can't he do the same for MPs who have been racist
1: yeah that's very true and I think yeah linking to that I definitely think as an argument from the left that will be made in sort of the first three months is um, has Keir up because of his sort of procedural style as a politician. He's not a sort of campaign type. He doesn't like to uh, raise and talk about the big issues in a sort of in a sort of passionate way that Corbyn liked to. So a lot of the left of the party would argue, like, what has like Keir done on on particular issues? Like, yeah, he did the uh, kneel for George Floyd. Did he did he say much about that? Did he say how substantively he thinks? Labour would tackle it. Not much, really. Um, and he's, yeah, as you say, he's he's not, um, he's also not, as you say, with Diana, but he's not sort of condemns the press. yeah, And, you know, racism of other types that are used the Tory party and the, and the right-wing press are just massively overlooked in this situation because of the dominance of, mm. of the tabloid media. Um, but I definitely think, yeah, I definitely think Kid definitely has to stand up more for these... Uh, definitely issues of um, racism, yeah, uh, sexism particularly, right. and and um, homophobia.
0: I feel like Starmer's when he's come, when since he's come in has often feel like the best policy is to sit on the fence a lot of the time, or not yeah. to lean too closely to one side or the other, and which is which is okay, I guess. He doesn't want to commit to something uh, where he is perceived negatively by a large portion of the public, um, but he doesn't. It just doesn't. He doesn't come across with like much conviction like Corbyn for all his flaws and there were a few but he he was a man who always stood by his principles you can you could see that he wanted to make actual change he was in the job that he does because he wanted to make a difference Starmer doesn't come across like that at all and that's not just because of his lack of charisma or his like he doesn't he's not the same kind of campaigner that Corbyn was he he doesn't come across in the same way that Corbyn did as a man who wants to make a difference.
1: Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I definitely agree, and I think Rebecca Long Bailey is 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 similar to Corbyn in that way. Like, she was the sort of architect of the of the Green New Deal policy. Yeah. And that policy, if you look at that policy polled individually, is actually very very popular among the electorate. So, you, you, she can really she could have been a really really important minister. Obviously, her brief uh, sorry shadow. Shadow, uh, shadow minister um obviously her brief is education um yeah but um she could have been very important in the economic you know in in criticizing the way in which the economy is brought back under under the conservatives especially if more people driving to work now so there's just going to be a massive carbon rebound and the way in which they're going to have to try and create more jobs through um investing in uh and training and um and apprenticeships yeah.
0: after COVID. Talking about Rebecca Bailey's work as shadow environment secretary, um, there's a story that broke yesterday or the day before in the independent about Keir Starmer potentially dropping Labour's uh, 2030 net zero climate target, mm. which is a real shame. Um, a lot yeah. of it, that is, partly a lot of it can be put down to the fact that Labour weren't elected in yeah. 2019, which, which made them lose five years in government, which means they can't meet that twenty thirty target. It's pretty much I guess it is pretty much impossible if they are elected in twenty twenty four to meet the target in just six years. Mm. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really bode well when one of like first within his first six months in the role is seems to be abandoning one of Labour's main policies about climate change. I guess it could be pushed back to 2035, but mm. a lot of people say is it just too late by that point?
1: I think yeah, I'm a bit split on that because obviously I, I do agree um uh with it being that the fact that Labour weren't elected, so Keir Starmer probably wants to be seen as more uh, have more realistic targets especially considering I don't think we're going to have well. Obviously, the earliest is probably going to be 2024. It's probably not going to be a general election before then. There could be a Labour government. Uh, and even that, it would be a massive turnaround for Labour to win, uh, to get back into government. Um, and I just think he probably wants to be seen as, yeah, setting realistic targets for himself in terms of in terms of green policy. But at the same time, the time is to act now. Like, we've, like they're running out of time of the environment. It's not like a it's not a continuous cycle no. there's no there's no such thing as an environment cycle it's not like the economy it's, like you it's can't. not
0: something that they can just strictly push back another five or 10 years because it has to be done as early as possible this net zero carbon this net zero uh, target that they're target that they're yeah. going for
1: yeah exactly and like with the with the, with the economy it's always a, a turn of uh, labor uh, labor introduce economic reform and then the tories Overturn that with their own reform. It's a cycle. You can't yeah. do that with the environment. Like, eventually, like it, it's going to be that like, it's going to be way too late. And I think it is already becoming too late. Like, there's definitely a limit on on the time in which we can act. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> For the main segment of the episode, we're going to talk about what the main parties need to do to succeed in the 2024 election. Um, that's simply in terms of being elected. We're not uh, we're not going to dive too deeply into individual policies that they need to put in their manifesto, but some ideas and some broad statements about what needs to happen. Um, we're going to start off with the Labour Party, and I've, it's Keir, as mentioned, Keir Starmer is in a bit of a hard position, not as he needs to. Not abandon the left-wing policies and the progress that Jeremy Corbyn's uh, made when he was leader, but he also needs, so he he can't neglect those people, um and those that section of the party and those voters. But he also needs to appeal to the centrists in the party and win back, uh, particularly northern voters, the traditional red wall that um much much of it was lost to the Conservative Party. So his by his own words, like making labor a broad church party but also remaining the party of the people not keeping jeremy corbyn's for the many not the few phrases that's associated with proper leftist labor but um remaining remaining the party of the people but also becoming a broad church maybe not um, abandoning left-wing but welcoming more central not exactly centrist more center-left policies um that that is what but that's what will get labor elected again they were keeping the same keep uh, pers- persevering with corbynism will get them nowhere at this point in time and the final point i have for it is rooting out racism um as we mentioned earlier labor have had a problem of anti-semitism which uh starmer ha- which starmer has pledged to eliminate um the reputation of being anti-semitic which was- which is like that's not an exaggeration it was a reputation for being anti-Semitic which really damaged Labour at the 2019 election Um, people actively calling Corbyn an anti-Semite and viewing Labour as the party of anti-Semitism really hurt them again stopping that rooting out the anti-Semitic uh, Labour MPs the problem of the party is what needs to happen but also racism in terms of other kinds of racism um, they need to pledge to end systemic racism as it's a massive issue i think that is something that will be uh, picked up as we go head into the next election uh, starmer has talked about it a bit not in detail as someone like corbyn would have but um it's something that needs it's something that needs to happen in order to um get minority voters on side because they need to see they need to know that actual change is going to occur
1: yeah so um
0: yeah so for that point
1: for the sort of second point on anti-semitism and like yeah racism generally labor is is meant to be the anti-racist party it is a party of equality and justice for all people so yeah the the report um the report i mentioned earlier from the i think it's the human rights commission on anti-semitism and labor party is going to show that the labor labor need to unite they need to uh come together and tackle the sort of minority uh, of members uh who who do spout over and and of and covert uh, anti-semitism and other forms of racism as well. Um uh and this will really like solidify Labour's current electoral base among the BAME community, yeah. particularly in uh cities. Um but also for your first point, this is a good opportunity for Labour to start Uh, start early for 2024 on setting out their, their, their agenda, which is clearly very different to the Tories, um, particularly looking at a post COVID economy, how that's going to work and how it's going to benefit working class people, not the sort of compared to the policies that um, the Tories are going to, are going to introduce post COVID. Yeah. um, Which is, I don't think is going to be very beneficial to working class people. Um, but also, yeah, working with other parties in Parliament, um, I think is going to be important because Labour have got an eighty-seat Tory majority to overturn in twenty twenty-four. Yeah, it's a mountain then to I climb. Think, I don't, yeah, I don't think they're going to win. Uh, I don't think they're going to win a majority. I think they're going to need either a confidence mm. and supply agreement with several parties, or, um, or some sort of formal coalition. Yeah. Um, Something. And yeah, sorry, yeah. carry on. Oh, sorry. And the last, I was just going to say, like, um there's obviously going to be lack of opposition motions that get through. It's not going to be like Theresa May's time as Prime Minister. Uh, the Tories have got that majority, a big majority and they can pass wherever they want. So Labour really need to set out their uh, opposite agenda to everything that the Tories do from now until 2024.
0: Yeah, Something that i uh, got down here is about like you said uh, like needing to improve relations with other parties of the left, particularly Lib Dems who aren't traditionally a party of the left but you know what I mean? They're, they are anti-Tory. Um, yeah. Do you agree that they need a kind of electoral pact? Do you think that Labour candidates should stand in um, constituencies where Lib Dem candidates have a chance to win and vice versa?
1: That's a difficult question, I think. I think, I think Labour couldn't enter a pact now with the Lib Dems. I think yeah. the Lib Dems are, are so hated and distrusted by so many, so many different groups of people yeah, um, well,
0: sorry, sorry to interrupt, but we'll get on to the Lib Dems. But they yeah. they have as much of a mountain to climb as Labour do, maybe yeah, maybe true. more so here because they need to completely rebrand essentially.
1: Mm. I think I think the Lib Dems could because this is an opportunity for the Lib Dems to to uh, like uh, move into the political space uh, because the, can, the Tories have gone more more to the right And yeah. the Boris have become more of an English kind of nationalist party and are introducing very socially conservative policies under Priti Patel and will continue to do so uh, as she's Home Secretary. It gives L- Labour who under Starmer have more similarities with Lib Dems than Corbyn did in a post-Brexit future for them to collaborate. But I think that has to, I think we need like the five years to see, to see what the Lib Dems, whether yeah. the Lib Dems will change their
0: positions on certain things. Yeah. Um, just quickly going back to racism in in the Labour Party and what they need to do about racism in the country, that is something I was asked to talk about by uh, our friend Connie. Shout out to Connie, um, but uh, yeah, she said that um, she's seen a lot of people saying vote Labour, uh, vote Labour, don't 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 vote Tory to stop racism, and in in essence, that is not strictly how it works. While Labour, as you said, Labour are the party of equality. That is what they're known for. That is what that is what they should be standing for. Um, as I said, that is cases of racism in the Labour Party, not just anti-Semitism, but as I mentioned with the leaked report from a couple of months ago that showed racism towards uh, black Labour members, like internal racism within the Labour Party. And due to the fact that we've only had Labour governments in the past, they haven't done as much as they should be doing to overturn systemic racism. We know that... So I agree, according to an extent, because... Um, Labour needs to do more about the issue of racism but anyone is better than the Tories with, with in dealing with this issue and don't get me wrong less racist is still racist but the ta- nothing will change while the Conservatives are still in power because as I mentioned on last week's podcast a cons- a, the ideology of Conservatism revolves around preserving and being content with the status quo which means that we won't see any kind of real social structural change while they're still in power
1: yeah, I think um, I think you're definitely right. I think anti-Semitism is is just like the most it's 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 the, issue, it it's a, it's is a, the most prevalent. Yeah, it's the, it's the
0: most prominent issue, but it's not. Yeah, but it's by no means the only issue.
1: Yeah, I think the th- the problem is is too many people have this kind of divide. They say that the the only problem of racism in Labour Party is anti-Semitism, and the problem that the Conservatives have is Islamophobia or black as well as black racism. But people don't, I think people sort of mistake that they put it in separate camps. And yeah, uh, there have been cases of, um, uh, you know, black racism in living in the Labour Party, as you say, towards like Diane Abbott and like, even by Labour members, um, I think it was something about like her drinking a mojito on the oh,
0: yeah. train or something. She got targeted for drinking a mojito on, on public transport. <laughs> yeah, she was forced oh. to apologise for it. Um, but yeah, I definitely think
1: Hopefully, the report that comes out will will look yeah. at other forms of racism within the party and make Labour more yeah. uh, more of the active anti-racist. Yeah, organization. that's that's that's
0: the key point. Like actively anti-racist. Mm. Um, they are they have launched an inquiry into why um, coronavirus affects um, BAME, BAME people more. And that's been spearheaded by uh, Doreen Lawrence, I think Stephen Lawrence's mum. Yeah. Um, which isn't it wasn't, isn't just down to genetic differences and races, it's clear that it's affected um underprivileged neighbourhoods more, which are often filled with um which are often composed of uh immigrant families or members of the BAME community. So they are more susceptible there as a result of um their social status rather than genetics. Yeah. Um, um yeah, so Labour has got a lot to do to succeed in twenty twenty four. We'll move on to the Conservative Party, and it's quite hard to say something now for the Conservative Party to do in order to succeed in twenty twenty four because they have currently got an eighty seat majority, even though um, they are <laughs> they are struggling at this moment in time of the coronavirus crisis. They're still polling, I think, at lowest four or five points ahead of everyone uh, ahead of ahead of uh, Labour. But this is what I've got is a bit controversial for the Conservative Party. I said if I I said what they need to do to win the 20, 2024 election is get rid of Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um if I if I was a Tory, I would be exhausted. I'd be so tired of having to defend Boris Johnson on all these things that he's done during this crisis so far. He's made countless U-turns. Um, expended vast amounts of political capital defending Dominic Cummings when there was clearly public opinion this wasn't a left-right issue it was this was something that essentially everyone is united on uh, the Dominic Cummings situation and with at elite it's, um, deaths are above 40,000 which is absolutely tragic it's likely it's likely higher than that um, due to figures that haven't been reported I wouldn't if I was if I was a conservative I wouldn't I think I'd eventually lose patience with Boris Johnson. He's he's he, he's got them elected, that's fair. That like he's done a great job he, even though he's the stereotypical Tory that's gone to Eton and is upper class, he's still able to win over working class voters. I it's impressive. You can't you can't argue with it because right, a lot of people just vote for him, "Oh yeah, Boris is a laugh, you know, he's funny." He, because he can't, he's personable. He's even though he, he his morals don't always seem to be all there he comes across as personal and friendly and not always politician-like to a lot of people which is his appeal I think to to working-class voters despite objectively I think being out of touch with them a lot of the time but if I, I think there's going to be if moments like the Dominic Cummings situation and retaining Robert Jenrick and doing countless U-turns like with the thing that Marcus Rashford pursued and the, the surcharge for immigrant NHS workers if he keeps like Going back on those and embarrassing the party and himself to an extent, I feel like people within the Conservative Party will eventually tire of that and feel like he has to be replaced
1: yeah, I think it's just how many scandals has he got gotten away of in his political career There was like the when he was mayor of London, there was the the green bridge idea there was the um the like really over overpriced like cable car um which cost loads and loads of money to the taxpayer there's been countless things, even when he was the mayor of London. Um, but I do agree with you. I think the difference, I think the difference with COVID-19 and the pandemic is that it shows that, yeah, in the 2019 election, Boris Johnson showed, I have to admit, as a lady member, how good he is at campaigning in terms yeah. of uh, personality campaigning. And we've definitely become more of a sort of American system in terms of personality uh, and sort of Boris Johnson's kind of that sort of cult of personality that Trump has. There are lots of, sort of similarities between them in terms of how they behave. Um, but I think the difference is COVID-19 requires a prime minister that's like, is good at detailed politics, like good, which Keir Starmer probably is good at, yeah. the sort of procedural politics of looking at the detail and working of the science and choosing the right time uh, to come out of lockdown, for example, to choose when you should reduce the distance. Like where's the track and t- trace uh app, it's just all of these kind of things add up and I think eventually you're right. I think there's been talk of disquiet actually, a start of talk of disquiet among some Tory backbenchers um towards Boris Johnson. They they think since he's become since he's recovered, uh he's he there's not been the kind of energetic prime minister that there was before and he's become very sort of defensive and obviously that show of Dominic Cummings thing. So I think I think you're right, and I think depending on how the economic uh crisis. Uh, hits people and how the Tories try and well, particularly Boris as the figurehead, tries to uh, react to that. That will really impact whether they decide to get rid of Boris Johnson. But I don't. In a way, it's too early to say whether they should get rid of Boris Johnson for 2024. Obviously.
0: Yeah, it is. It is a bit early to talk about Boris um, not not being Conservative leader before the 2024 election especially because the party is like riding so high on their 80 seat majority and a lot can happen in four years um but as i mentioned on last week's podcast boris is lucky to an extent that this is happening at the start of an election cycle rather than in the last six months of his time in uh, in office because it'd be a disaster for him in terms of uh his electability but um yeah. Yeah, I think there's also an issue around who who could succeed him as the next Conservative leader. I think it's likely to be someone within his shadow, uh, shadow cabinet, within his within his cabinet, um, um, mostly because they he they've yeah. they've built since Boris has come in like a hard right ideology. I don't think it would be m- more one of the cent- more centre leaning members like David Cameron was in the past. Mm. Uh, I feel like the most likely candidate is rishi sunak um he's come across he's probably been one of the politicians that's come across the best during the pandemic yeah um i feel like he's he's comes across well-spoken and um caring as as much as a conservative politician can be that's partly (laughs) Um, excuse me partly because he is uh originator of the furlough scheme he's paying he's the one who's being responsible for paying everyone's wages at the moment—that's if you're paying everyone's wages for them to eighty percent everyone's wages for them to stay at home—that's going to get you favourability, whoever you are, whatever party yeah. you belong to. Um, it is a bit yeah. ironic, obviously, though, as conservatives always talk about the magic money tree, which Rishi, <laughs> yeah. Rishi, Rishi yeah. Sunak has now suddenly <laughs> been able to find. But um, yeah. he's come across very well um during during the pandemic. Mm. Um, there are other candidates such as. Dominic Raab, he's been touted as a future leader um as has Pretty Patel who is less popular but um yeah they both they both fit the hard right conservative ideology um at the moment uh Michael Gove potentially making another run at leadership okay. I don't think his popularity and electability popularity has always been his issue and mm. winning the public's trust which is um why I don't think he'd ever be elected conservative leader. Uh do you think you could see yeah. someone from outside the cabinet maker run at it like Jeremy Hunt again?
1: Yeah, there's been talks of um Jeremy Hunt um wanting to uh he's been like helping Matt Hancock apparently recently yeah. like trying to help in what the plan is for, to get the NHS off their feet. So I feel like he might try and he might be trying to vie for a cabinet position to then help himself. Mm. Uh, potentially run for leader mm. um, particularly with these doubts about Boris
0: yeah uh, as, as much as much as I don't like Jeremy Hunt if he, if he was yeah. health secretary at this point we'd probably be in a better position than we are now
1: potentially yeah I mean because he had that brief for so long yeah even I'll hold my hands up like he tried to shut the local hospital yeah it was him. that was a disgrace
0: but and like, many other dirty things but, but um, um, yeah he that is this is all hypothetical as well there's <laughs> a massive chance as well that Boris Johnson will stay in his position and mm. leads the Conservatives into the next election. Um yeah. because he is a good campaigner. But um yeah.
1: I think I think I do agree with you on Rishi Sunak though. I think even if Boris stands in 2024 and even if he wins that, I don't think he'll then stand in another election after that. I think he would have, you know, achieved his goals of sort yeah. of winning two elections on the bounce with a pandemic yeah. uh, after the first election victory. Um, and obviously that would make him the most successful Tory leader electorally since Thatcher. But I think with, yeah, with Sunak, I definitely agree that he's, because he, he's got the opportunity now because he was brought in, don't like, let's not forget by like Dominic Cummings with the help of Dominic Cummings yeah. um, as a sort of right-hand man um, because, because he's seen as less sort of physically... Conservative as um, as Sajid Javid, uh, and is more likely to you know offer the spending that, that the voters, particularly in the red wall seats, that voted Tory for yeah. the first time, the the sort of spending. So my question to you is: Do you think? Well, do you think Rishi Sunak will take the opportunity, and do you think he'll end ten years? Well, ten years in
0: counting of austerity. Um, I don't think any conservative prime minister government is gonna end austerity mm. i think it would be reduced under rishi sunak because he's yeah. shown the willingness to spend he's not as fiscally conservative as whereas uh, um other members of the party of the cabinet but I, I think it yeah i think it'd be reduced but i don't think austerity is going to end anytime soon again uh under any kind of conservative mm. government um, have you got any points you want to make about what the Conservative Party need to do to win in the next election? Um, the other thing was maybe, like,
1: because they're, they are the Conservative and Unionist party, like, obviously, they would say they're the party of, of the UK, they're the party of the Monarch, they're the party of tradition, yeah. etc, cetera, et cetera. It Like, it might be seen as important to try and keep... Um, you know, maintain the union, and potentially they might have to offer a Scotland, you know, Devo max, uh, even more devolution, devolve yeah. power. Um, and they also they also might have to risk an independence referendum after they've done that, and mm. um, to finally settle the issue. Because although Scotland leaving the UK is worth for Labour electorally, it in it will permanently uh, take away the fact that the conservatives aren't the unionist party yeah, anymore
0: that, that's um, a bad look for them like letting scotland yeah, leave permanently. the union like yeah yeah and
1: i think that's that that's a key point but at the moment the problem is it's too early and they can do because the pandemic is the main focus obviously they're going to have to react to that and depends on the economic reaction to that mm. um but obviously they can pass whatever and any other legislation through the back door with no with very little scrutiny, which is the problem of the UK system. Yeah. They have a majority this big, like, what can the opposition do? What can the select committee do? Yeah,
0: yeah. We'll move on to the Lib Dems, um, who have a lot to sort out. Um, The main thing for them, I think, is for the uh, 2024 election, but by the way, we're assuming that that is when the next election will be. Um, That's when it's set to be. But um, for the next election, they need to have some kind of identity. Um, you mentioned earlier that they could go two ways. Um, I I agree with that. I think they need to decide whether because some of their uh, some of their MPs and members have been describing them, they want to be a. They decide whether they want to be a radical progressive party, as has been suggested, mm-hmm. um, or whether they want to be a, a genuine alternative in the centre between the Labour and the Tories. Um as you said, they could move into the ground that some of the ground that's been left by the uh by the Conservatives as they as they've moved further to the right. But um yeah. if they want to be a radical progressive party, as we saw they haven't really had many strictly radical uh policies. I suppose outright revocation of Article fifty was a radical yeah. policy. But um yeah. aside from that, they haven't really had that much of an identity, uh, that kind of identity. I feel like their success, more like more potential success, lies within being a genuine party of the center. More kind of like, if you if I use uh, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party in Canada as an example of like big tent mm-hmm. politics, where he, where he does literally attempt to sit on the fence as much as possible with these kind of issues. Yeah. If he has like a yeah. broad over, if they have like a broad overarching, um, broad overarching policies that welcomes everyone into the uh, into the liberal Democrats manifesto, like they're, they're not sticking to left or right. They're staying in the center and trying to get votes yeah. from both sides. Um, I feel like that's where success they get the most successful. I also thought that they need to be realistic with their approach to politics. Joe, Joe, Joe <laughs> jo Swinton was talking about how she could, she could be prime minister before the 2019 <laughs> election, which we all knew, we all, we all knew was never going to happen, but, um, never gonna happen but more. she, she said it herself. Um, those words came out of her mouth, and she did not even win her seat in the in the general general election in twenty nineteen. They can be yeah. they can be a potentially a deciding factor. They're never going to win a majority, obviously. Um, well, not any mm. not anytime soon, at least. Yeah. But they can be a deciding factor. As we, if we go back to um twenty ten, yeah. and the uh, the mid two thousands as well, when they were a force, they had uh, consistently. a... Yeah. Uh, I think it's like three or four elections in a row, they had above fifty seats. Yeah. Um they can be I mean can, they can be a deciding factor as we saw of the coalition. And if they, they they need to commit to I think most likely because they are so they are as equally anti Tory as Labour, um yeah. getting the well, it depends on the new leader, but um getting the Tories out is probably one of their main priorities and I think they need to look towards uh, Potential coalition or at least the election pact with Labour. Not something that has to yeah. be done, but something that should be considered.
1: Yeah. So, the first point I do definitely in a post sort of post Brexit world, I definitely agree the Lib Dems have got to be, uh, they've got to be more, they've got to open their uh, views to more people because. Um, they've made their position in the centre much smaller with, with their Brexit position of revoking Article fifty. Like they split the remain vote the remain voters who would uh, they turn those away, the remain voters who would uh, support some sort of Brexit deal, like yeah. sort of Norway plus at the time. But obviously post-Brexit it gives the Lib Dems opportunity to move away from just talking about the EU and the very just sort of single issue party that they were becoming under Joe Swinson. Um So obviously they need to try and appeal to as many people as possible with the sort of, as you say, like a sort of halfway house. I think they'll probably try and do that economically, uh, particularly. Um, But I feel as though they also do, yeah, they do also need to work with Labour, particularly as it's going to be five years of Tory government at least. Yeah. Um, uh, And they need to show that their voter base has definitely become, because they've lost so many seats since 2015, um, and obviously the collapse under Nick Clegg um, um, their voter base has become centred in, in sort of cities uh, which obviously tend to be marginals with Labour um, so in their own self-interest electorally they might actually pose an obstacle to Labour because that support has come from the fact of those being centres of Remain voters yeah. but at the same time um, the same time, there is also now uh, an opportunity to, one, work for the Labour leader a lot ideologically closer to them. Yes, absolutely. Than Corbyn, I definitely think so. And second of all, because the Conservative Party have moved to the right so much, the Lib Dems can show their sort of liberal values. That they did them in the 2000s when they were opposing po- stuff like um, indefinite detention of terrorists, which obviously happened when there was a, a new Labour government, which was even more to the right. Yeah. Um, I don't Um, know what you
0: think about that Yeah I I agree that they can they are now with Starmer uh, being elected Labour leader they're more in a position where they can work ideologically with the Labour Party I feel that needs needs to be something that has to be considered for them um, whether they actively but whether they do have an electoral pact eventually to um, maximise the chance of each party winning seats and getting the Tories out I don't think uh, I think you mentioned it earlier, uh, that Labour, I don't think the Labour will win a majority in 2024 either. No. I think, but if the Lib Dems can, uh, if the Lib Dems can form a coalition, I think that that's needs, that needs to be what they're targeting at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were, you can't knock uh, Jo Swinson's ambition and the fact that she, <laughs> you can't knock that that she wanted them to be, uh, she wanted to be Prime Minister, she wanted Lib Dems to win a majority. That realistically, mm. in, in, Twenty twenty and and further on, that's not where the Lib Dems going to be. That isn't their their role in British politics at this point in time. Um, but they can be, they can they can be they can have an impact on an election for certain. Yeah. Um. Talk about the other parties, briefly. Um. Do you want to talk about the SNP quickly? I know you've got some things to say about them. Um. Yeah. Obviously, the SNP. They're
1: gonna. They obviously you could just argue they could keep doing what they're doing and pushing. Yeah independence as much that, as That possible was what through. I
0: was saying for them. Sorry to interrupt. But um yeah, yeah sorry, that's, that's fine, what I yeah. that's what I was saying. I was struggling to come up with something with for the SNP. That's because they mm. are doing well at the moment is if they keep doing what they're doing, pushing for independence, yeah. I think they will succeed.
1: Yeah, and with COVID nineteen as as you say, like they are they are being uh, uh they are being very successful within within the Scottish Parliament in terms of being much more cautious about their uh, taking us out of lockdown and they're, they're setting out sort of different plans to what the Tories are um, Yeah. Uh, in their response to COVID-19. So in, in a way, COVID-19 is kind of accelerating the uh, kind of federal system, particularly between England and Scotland, I think in the UK. Um, and I think, I think obviously the SN Labour, obviously, they're not going to win back Scotland. It's going to take them a very long time to win back Scotland. But they need to keep uh, Scotland within the within the union if they have any chance of um, if they have any chance of uh, of winning back power at Westminster yeah. um, because the Tories have won so many of their seats now in England uh, and Wales they have won more seats but um, there's definitely an opportunity I think for Keir Starmer to sort of show he's supportive of maintaining the union for electoral purposes yeah. and working with the SNP but then for the SNP, P what's in it for them is if they if you as you say, like as if they do what the Lib Dems do, which is join some sort of agreement or like formal coalition in twenty twenty four, obviously they're gonna want a referendum. Yeah. On it. And I think I to be honest, in my personal opinion I think it I think it's democratic considering
0: considering Scotland is so different to England yeah. in terms of its political values and... and considering the recent support for the SNP that shows like there is still a demand for a referendum yeah and they, and they, and they've kept
1: like they I think they've been in control of the Scottish Parliament since 2007 now. yeah so it really as you say like in Scotland it's it's going to be a long time until Labour or the,
0: or the Tories meet the yeah. same sort of
1: support as SNP have there so
0: um quickly mention two other smaller parties. I'll talk we'll talk about the Brexit party. Whether 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 they'll still be about in twenty twenty four, potentially under a different name or yeah. not they might not be there altogether. Um Nigel Farage, despite never being an MP himself, he'll go down as one of the most influential politicians of the twenty yeah. first century. He's he's had such an influence on right wing politics, he's basically put the con forced the Conservative Party to be in the ideological position that they are now yeah um again again i guess they need some kind of identity well um farage will claim that they're not a single issue party they are they are <laughs> they are
1: mm, yeah definitely and they that that's seen in the name isn't it so
0: yeah yeah it's in the name and it remains to be seen whether they'll still be about in
1: 2024 mm. yeah i think i think a lot of the the I think a lot of Brexit Party members will probably try and join the Conservative Party now, like the sort of grassroots of Yeah. It because as you say, it's such a single issue party. Like they were literally just created so that some sort of Brexit deal go blind. But although although saying that Nigel Farage might create some another sort of party or or keep the Brexit party to like make sure that the future trade deal is is what he wants. <laughs> it's got to be a particular type of Brexit deal. Yeah. All of these like different parts of it, but yeah, I just really think it's um, especially a first past post. That was obviously showing them winning no with no seats.
0: That that says that says a lot um about when what you said about conservative uh, sorry Brexit party members joining the Conservative Party. That says a lot about where the yeah. Tories are. As I mentioned, they've been forced to move to the right as a result of influence on people like Farage. Um. They've been forced to adopt fairly popular policies that the Brexit party, uh, previously UKIP, were pushing for. It says a lot when a party that could that some people perceive to be far-right, definitely hard right-wing party like the Brexit yeah. party, far-right may be a bit of a stretch, but it can be used um, to describe them. When their members are joining con- the, the mainstream Conservative Party, that shows where the Tories are at the moment in terms of the political spectrum
1: yeah definitely and the mainstream have just co-opted like far right but like, it like, just wear like, like the, the marches the other week the um the other sort of democratic, oh the, so-called democratic yes the of, the statue
0: protectors like. in central london yeah.
1: Yeah. it's just like not contempt condemned by the government like particularly like in any strong way whereas when it's you know blm protesters protested for equality and justice it's it's completely condemned yeah. as oh statue violence and all this they basically want to create a culture war i think and it yeah. really shows how the conservatives that's, that's the thing I,
0: it, it was never about statues realistically it was about st- no. opposing the black lives matter movement yeah um but we all knew that anyway <laughs> that's that's yeah um we yeah. will quickly mention the green party again something that um i didn't have much to Say for they are doing what they can in a limited window. Um, they have got more space, probably more room to breathe on on the left wing now, considering yeah. that um, Starmer is go is absolutely going to move Labour closer to the sem uh, closer to the centre. So they can become a more the most once again the m- most left wing party. Um, you mentioned before recording that um, Labour's twenty nineteen manifesto was considered more environmentally friendly and more mm. than, the, than the green party themselves
1: yeah and yeah well that was rebecca long bailey yeah that was she was, she was architect behind for that yeah and then she's now gone and like it just doesn't look good for Labour's green credentials in a way like getting rid of the architect of the green new deal policy but yeah i think i think you're right i think the green party have uh Again, it's the same as the Lib Dems, like post Brexit, they've now got the opportunity to be a lot closer with Labour yeah. and sort of progressive alliance and and um, make sure that Labour adopts uh, very, very good and radical green policies. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, that brings us to the end of the backbench. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, mu- thank you so much if you've made it this far. Uh, thanks a lot to Fergal for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Sam. That's all really right. Have you got day.
0: anything anything to
1: plug? <laughs> Do you want to see your Instagram? <laughs> I don't have Twitter. I'm sorry, guys. But uh, <laughs> my Instagram is all lowercase. It's Fergal J-I-4. Uh, no,
0: ji yeah, J-I-4, so
1: I almost forgot that. There you go, got
0: right eventually. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much to Fogel for coming on and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've got any questions, feedback, or you're interested in coming on the podcast, you can tweet me at BenchPodWithSam on Twitter or you can email BenchPodWithSam at gmail.com. And yeah, thank you for listening to this uh, podcast. The uh, next episode of The Subs Bench, which is the sports section of BenchPod, will be out on Tuesday. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for listening and see you soon.